This is God's word from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do not know, and you do what you have heard from your father. Amen. Thanks, Ashley. All right, friends. So we're going through the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 8. Uh, if you're new, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Really glad to have you with us. Before we do anything else, let's just pray. And let's ask God to illuminate his word for us. Um, and that we would, as this passage says, we would know the truth. And we would experience the freedom that comes from that. God, I ask and I pray that you would give each of us uh, soft and, and teachable and receptive hearts right now that we would receive truth from your word. We would receive grace from your word. And God, I pray for myself that you would uh, help my tongue to only speak that which is in line with the truth of your word. And I pray that the attention and the glory would go to Jesus today. It's in his name we pray. Amen. And you think about this phrase, the truth will set you free. That's a fairly well-known phrase. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, there's people who, people who have never read the Bible, never been to church. And if you walked up to them, you said, you will know the truth. And they will probably say, like Jim Carrey in Liar Liar in 1996, the truth shall set you free, right? You guys remember that movie? Okay, good. Because it was, uh, I worked a lot on that joke this week and you guys didn't really laugh very much and it hurt my feelings. So, or, you know, like when you think about these types of phrases, right? Like what's, what's the other one that's incredibly uh, popular in our culture, right? Oh, uh, you can't handle the truth, right? Just get that out of the way right now. You're all waiting for it to happen at some point in the sermon. So let's just get that out of the way. When I think about popular phrases about the truth, the one that comes to mind for me is the tagline from the TV show, The X-Files, The Truth is out there, right? Anybody here X-Files fans, fellow nerds? Thank you. Hector, I knew I could count on you, right? The idea behind that show was kind of a science fiction, conspiracy theory sort of, sort of a show. And they would always give you like this little bit of information, this little bit of, of data about the government conspiracy and they're keeping you know, secrets about aliens and all this stuff from you. And it was basically, you know, hey, if you just watch one more episode... Next time, you'll really know the truth. And you keep watching and you keep watching. And then before you know it, eight seasons have gone by and you think to yourself, hey, I think they're using this dangling of the truth to get me to watch their TV show more and more. And that, my friends, is the truth. <laughs> it's like 
psychology, human behavior 101, right? That's, the, that's what they're trying to do is to, to kind of get you to keep digging in and to keep searching it out. How many of you would agree there's some sort of impulse in the human heart that loves to know truth? Would you agree with that? We want to know truth. We want to understand truth, whether that's things, you know, in, in politics or in health and fitness or how to parent or things about finance or what stocks are good or not good. We always want to have some sort of insider information. We want to know about truth because friends, we are created in the image and the likeness of God and that impulse, that drive and that desire for truth is part of our original glory. If you were here last week, you know that we really pressed in hard onto the idea of our brokenness and our, our sinfulness before God. And while all of that is, I believe, true, and while all of that needs to be taken seriously, the fact that we are broken and the fact that we are sinful does not negate the fact that human beings were created in the image and the likeness of God. And though our sin and our brokenness has tarnished that and has brought uh, damage to that, it has not destroyed it. Amen? And so just because you're sinful, just because you're broken, does not mean that you cease to be an image bearer. It just means that we have distortions and we need Jesus through his grace to put us back together piece by piece like a broken mirror so that we can more correctly reflect his glory and his goodness. And I think that this impulse for truth is part of it. Here's the problem though. In our brokenness, we seek truth or we are satisfied with truth that stops short of the truth himself, Jesus. And so that's where we're going today. That's our big idea is that that Jesus is the truth and to know him is to truly know freedom. All other truths, all truth belongs to God. All truth is God's truth. And all of those, you know, lowercase t truths are meant to point us to Jesus, the truth himself. So you guys with me so far? Let's dive into this passage. Verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. Okay, pause for a minute just for context. Again, some of you are here last week. The last few weeks, we've been looking at Jesus in these series of interactions and conversation with a group of Jewish leaders. This is happening during the the Jewish feast of Sukkot, or what's known as the Feast of, of Booths. And they're having these interactions back and forth. And last week, the passage we looked at last week, Jesus said, if you don't believe in me, you're going to die in your sins. Sin is a big deal and you must believe in me or else it it leads to death. And it says that after Jesus had said this and he he talks about his own death and and it says that some of them start to believe him. So some of these Jewish people, they start to say, okay, I, I, I think I'm tracking with what Jesus is saying and I want to understand it. I want to believe it. So he says, here's the deal, guys. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. He says, I'm glad that you're starting to believe. I'm glad that the wheels are starting to turn, but it's not just enough to say in my mind, yes, I understand. I think that you're speaking truth. I believe you. Jesus says, you got to go all in. You got to go all in. You got to abide in my word. Well, what does that mean to abide in his word? And I think even before we can answer that, what does it mean? What does just his word mean? 
Let me, let me ask a question. How many of you were, were maybe raised in and around the church or kind of a religious environment? And so when you hear the words, and I don't mean that pejoratively, but just when you hear the words, abide in my word, you automatically assume I have to read the Bible a lot. Anybody kind of with me on that? That was at least for me, my experience, raised in church and, and raised around, you know, Christian things. And I, you know, when you say like the word, the word almost exclusively meant the Bible, the written word of God. That is not untrue, but it's not the entirety of the truth. See, God's word is bigger than just the Bible. It starts with God himself, that our God is the type of God who communicates. He is a God who you can't even make it through the first couple of sentences of the Bible before it says, and God said. How did God create the universe? By his word, by his communication. Let there be light. Let there be plants. Let there be raccoons for some reason. I don't know, but they're in my yard and God said it. So there they are. Other myths, other religions, other philosophies, the way that the universe came into being was like gods would get into some sort of a battle and one god would chop off the the arm of the other god and that arm fell down into the primordial soup and it turned into the world. Like that's how the world came to be. But the Bible, the Hebrew scriptures in particular are unique in that God creates by his communicating power. Isn't that interesting? That ought to tell you something about the nature of our God. Another thing about God's word is that it's multifaceted. God's word is as multifaceted as God himself. And in Hebrews 1, you've heard me say this before, but I love this verse. It says, in many times and in many diverse ways, God has spoken to us through the prophets. So God speaks through the prophets, particularly the prophets that their words were written down and we get the, 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 the scriptures of the Old Testament. He speaks through the apostles. Those words were written down. We get the New Testament. But God speaks in other ways, amen? God speaks through dreams. God speaks through visions. God speaks through communica- uh, community and relationship with one another. I have had God speak to me, to my heart, through brothers and through sisters in Christ in my life. God speaks through nature. I remember uh, a few years ago, taking a trip with my family. I believe we were in Hawaii, a family trip. And I I thought to myself, I want to go play in the waves because I live in a place where there are waves, but you don't want to play in them because you will get hypothermia and die. So I'm in the warm ocean. I'm in the water. I'm playing. I'm having a great time. And I let my guard down and one slightly larger wave than the ones I had previously been interacting with picked me up and slammed me into the ocean floor. I thought that sand was soft, apparently not, because I clocked my head, it rang my bell, and I got the wind knocked out of me, and I thought, I'm a man, I'm going to go sit down for a minute. And that's when I had the thought, wow, that was like one wave of billions of waves that are going to crash on seashores today. It knocked me off my rocker, it totally flattened me. And that's not even that big of a wave. God is powerful. And I saw his, his word on display in nature. And that power of God is another one of the parts of God's word that is just so incredible. The book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah says that God's word, when, when God communicates and God speaks his word, it never returns back to him empty. 
but it always accomplishes what it sets out to do. Let me see, by a show of hands, any of you parents of young children feel the exact opposite? Like your word does not accomplish what you set out for it to do, right? The book of Hebrews says that his word upholds the universe. Like he's keeping the whole universe running by his word. Meanwhile, I feel like I can't even keep the front seat of my car working properly by the word of my power. There's garbage and coffee mugs and children's homework all over it. And God's word is powerful. When God says something, it does something. When God's word becomes flesh, Jesus, the son of God, he accomplishes what he sets out to do. Amen? And God's word, this verse shows us that God's word is our greatest need. Jesus says, that's great. You want to follow me? You want to believe in me? You got to live in my word. You need to live in my communication. You need to study, yes, the scriptures, but, but it's bigger than even just that. It means more like you need to have your thoughts and your feelings and your actions shaped by the communication of God, shaped by Jesus, his work, his example, shaped by the scriptures, shaped by the prophets, shaped by community that can speak into your life. It means like everything you got, you're going all in on Jesus. Abide in my word. Abide in my word. As, as, as our friend Steve Patton said a few months ago when he came to preach for us, you're going all in on Jesus. There's nothing else. You just got, you got a certain number of poker chips and you're just pushing them to the center of the table and saying it's Jesus or bust. So that's what Jesus says to them. You need my word. And we could say for just for a moment, you know, it's, it's remarkable. Can we just pause for a moment? How remarkable it is that God communicates to us. God doesn't need to communicate to us, but he does communicate with us. Isn't that incredible to you? Can we just think about that for a moment? That the God of the universe, the one who made the wave that knocked me down, the one that hung the stars and the moon and the sun in the sky has been gracious enough to speak to us. I remember stumbling across a quote a while back from a guy uh, named St. Anthony of Egypt, and he had become kind of a big deal in his day. And this is right around the time when uh, Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity. And this is, you know, before the, the Roman Empire officially adopted Christianity, but it was starting to be a little bit more okay to be a Christian. There wasn't as much persecution. And Anthony became kind of a big deal, so much so that he actually started getting letters from Emperor Constantine. And the, the, the monks, the, I don't know what you call them, monk, underling monks, I don't know what you call them. And they were all like, wow, Anthony, this is amazing. You're getting letters from the emperor himself. And Anthony is kind of famous for saying this. Do not be astonished if an emperor writes to us, for he is just a man. But rather wonder that God wrote the law for men and has spoken to us through his own son. Friends, we should not, just the remarkable act of gathering like this to open the scriptures, to look at the life of Jesus, the words, the communication of God. I just pray that that, that strikes your heart anew. God, you communicate, you've, you've spoken to us. Let us abide in him, in his word. And his word, his word is pure. His word is truth. Knowing truth is equivalent to knowing Jesus. It's the same thing. If you really have truth, it's, it's, it comes from Jesus. Here's something, here's something I want to say. It might stretch some of you. 
If you hear something that is true, even if it's spoken by a source that is questionable, not always reliable, but if something they say is true, that truth belongs to Jesus. Can you hear me on that? Now, I'm not saying to not exercise discernment. Even a, what's the saying? Even a broken clock is wrong twice a day, right? There are people who will teach things or say things where they're often wrong and off base, and then they say something true. That does not mean you should accept everything that they say and they teach. But if somebody, not a Christian, a godless pagan, I don't care if it's a donkey, if they say something that is true, that truth belongs to Jesus. Can you hear me on that? And I was, I was going to show you grammatically, you know, how when Jesus says, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, I could show you grammatically how it's all kind of connected and Jesus himself is the truth. But I thought, let's just make this easy. Let's just cheat. Let's flip a few pages ahead to John 14, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the truth. He is the truth. If you discover truth, if you find truth, if you hear truth, if you experience truth, it is ultimately from Jesus himself. So the, the, that drive to know truth is meant to terminate in Jesus. Now, what happens when that drive, that desire, that impulse that we have to know the truth, what happens when it goes awry? What happens when it gets a little bit off base? Well, We'll see an example of that happening here in verse 33. So they answered him. Now you guys got to, you got to hear this. <laughs> These Jewish people, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. That's hilarious. Okay. So you do not need to be a Jewish scholar. All you need to do is have been paying attention to the previous chapter to why are they gathered in Jerusalem right now? For the Feast of Booths, the, the Feast of Sukkot, where they do a, basically a week-long camping trip to celebrate the time when their ancestors lived in tents in the wilderness and God provided for them after they were set free from slavery in Egypt. <laughs> Like, that is literally what's going on around them. They're like leaning up against a tent. I guess you can't lean on a tent, but they're like next to a tent while having this conversation. They say, we have never been slaves to anyone. That is irony. That is some good writing, John. I am proud of you. I want to shake your hand in eternity someday. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Okay, this is what you call a truth distortion. These particular people that Jesus is speaking to have imagined up a scenario in their mind that feels true to them, but it does not square with reality. Have you ever felt like you've had that conversation with someone? Like, man, they really believe this, but they are, you know, like just, it's not lining up with reality. You know how frustrating that feeling is? Oh my goodness, it's maddening. I remember I've had those conversations with people like, well, and then this happened and that happened. I'm like, no, I was there. That didn't happen. I was in the room. Well, yeah, but, but, but when this happened and when this so-and-so said that, I'm like, I'm, I don't know what to tell you. That never happened. They're like, well, you're wrong. I'm like, you're crazy. And I, I didn't say that. I'm more gracious than that probably, but just, I hope. I don't, rem I don't remember. I've, I've got my own truth distortions. Do you ever wonder...
Do you ever wonder if, if, if God kind of just shakes his head at our truth distortions? What? What did you? What? I mean, obviously God is full of grace and mercy, abounding in loving kindness, slow to anger. But do you ever just think he just goes like, my goodness. <laughs> what, tru- what story did you make up? See, this impulse for truth, we're far too easily satisfied. We want truth. We desire truth. We, we want to know the truth. But sometimes these, these distortions enter in and, and we, end up, we end up shortchanging ourselves. We end up being robbed of the joy that comes from truly knowing Jesus as the truth. If you'll allow me for a minute, I want to share with you something that I, I believe uh, pastorally uh, I've noticed over the last few years, and actually I read a book, I'll quote from the author here in a moment, but I read a book recently that actually put it into words better than I could. Um, and it has something to do with this, this ancient heresy known as Gnosticism. Can y'all say Gnosticism? If you've not heard that word before, it just comes from, it comes from the Greek word for knowledge. And it has to do with this, this seriously, this ancient history. It goes all the way back to the time of, of Plato. It actually has some roots in Zoroastrianism and kind of Iranian mystic stuff. And it actually really flourished right around the time that the New Testament was being written. Here's what this author, Andrew Walker, here's how he defines. He says, Gnosticism is this ancient view of ourselves that is in fashion again today. In ancient times, it it both predated Christianity and, and permeated much of the early church. It taught that the physical world, matter, is bad and broken. And what really matters is for a person to seek spiritual escape away from the world. Gnosticism emphasizes that a person's self awareness is different than and more important than physical creation. So if I was to summarize Gnosticism, it's, it's kind of this dualism. There's an upper spiritual world that's good and a lower earthly physical world that's bad. And if you get this secret knowledge, some people have this secret knowledge, this, this Gnostic knowledge. And once you get a hold of this secret knowledge, boy, the truth will set you free from this lower plane of existence. Here's where, this, here's where I see this showing up in the church. Let me speak uh, what I hope is a loving word of correction to Christians first. We play into Gnosticism when we say things like, when we fly away and go to heaven forever, and we believe that the end of the story is disembodied, spiritual, shimmery, see-through, harps, robes, right? Is that what the Bible actually teaches is the end of the story? No. The Bible teaches that Christ returns and creates a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no more death itself, no more sickness, no more mourning, no more wheelchairs, no more brain tumors, no more divorce, no more brokenness, and that we will exist in a renewed heavens and a renewed earth, and that Jesus is making all things new again. That's what the Bible teaches. And so it breaks my heart, but when we sing certain songs, like like there's a hymn that I really love musically. I love the melody. I love the chord progression. Uh, it's called I'll Fly Away. And it uses the words, I think it's something like, when, like a bird, from these prison walls I'll fly. I'll fly away. Gnosticism. I'm on thin ice. I'm going to keep dancing. Uh, the, 
the, the, if, I could, if I could be so bold as to say, uh, I think that the Left Behind book series was so, so incredibly popular. And I'm not, I'm sincerely not trying to throw stones, but it's this whole idea of just being raptured away and being raptured out and just let the world burn. And God's going to rapture us out to our secret zone of existence where the, the physical world doesn't matter. That's not biblical Christianity. That's the influence of Gnosticism. We see it in our, that's for the church. We need to reckon with that. Yes, when you die, should the Lord not return, your body and your spirit will be separated. Your spirit goes to be with Christ. Yes, amen, that's right. And then your spirit gets reunited with a new body, new heavens, new earth. Praise Jesus. That's where we're headed. That's the end of the story. In our culture, in our society, we're seeing this play out right now uh, in the area, in particular, kind of the, the, the main area as we're seeing this is, is in the area of gender and gender identity, where the body and biology and science and physical creation is being denigrated and downplayed, and it's the secret knowledge, if you could only see the secret knowledge inside of myself, that's more true and that's more real than nature. See, guys, when God created the earth. He didn't say, okay, let there be land and let there be sea and let there be animals. And then he, he took the dust of the earth and he formed a, a, a human out of it and breathed the breath of life. And then God didn't say, well, that'll do for now. Someday I'll free you from this prison. No, what did he say? He said, it's good. In the Hebrew, it's like, it's really good that you are not a soul trapped in a body. You are you. Spirit, soul, body, mind, will, emotions. You are the totality of who God created you to be. You also see this play on our culture in social media. Um, I found this true, particularly among digital natives and younger generations, where something along the, something, that's the term, I didn't make it up. Something along the lines of, if it didn't happen on social media, it didn't really happen. And they would maybe never say that, but it's like real life. Again, some of those, actually one of those conversations I was telling you about happened over something that they read on social media. And I'm like, I'm, I don't know what to say. I was there in the room. That didn't happen. They're like, but I read it on Facebook. I'm like, just because you read it on the internet doesn't mean it's real or true. And they're like, but I can't. And so, <laughs> listen, this, this, this Gnostic impulse shows up in lots of places. And if I had time, I could just keep poking fun. I got a minute. Let's keep going. So, um, <laughs> Right? This is, this is, listen, I wanna, I'm just going to try to get all of our, our triggers, all of our idols out of the way so that we can run to Jesus. Politics. I don't care which side of the aisle you're on, both left and both right love to use language of, oh, if, you, if they don't speak the truth or they don't, they're lying and they're lying liars who lie and they're full of untruths and truthiness and truth. Like you just, that kind of language goes on. If you could just get my secret knowledge to understand all things political, they think about it. Health, fitness. Oh, if you, you know, the fitness industry is lying to you and I've got the one secret that will get rid of that stubborn belly fat. It only will cost you $29.95, right? Like it's, it's Gnosticism. I've got this secret knowledge. It'll fix everything for you. Oh, you've got the wrong essential oils. You need this essential oils. It will change your life. Like whatever, whatever it could be. I don't, <laughs> all right, I'm done. <sighs> the point is this. The point is this. In our brokenness, we sometimes arrive at truths 
that they might be true in and of themselves. I'm not saying don't study politics. I'm not saying don't uh, research, you know, health and fitness and what's best for you and to eat. And to, I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying is sometimes those things taste so good in the moment that we forget that they are signposts. They're appetizers pointing us to the ultimate truth that is Jesus Christ himself. And we can sometimes feel so satisfied I'll just make a confession. I can do this in in my line of work with theology. Oh, I've got all the right theology and I've got all the right books and I've got all the right Bible teachings. And in the meantime, I've stopped short of Jesus himself. It's become transactional and not relational. Jesus wants you to have him. And all the other truth that you receive along the way is meant to point you to him. And the hard part is when we get to Jesus, part of this truth that we need to receive is that we're slaves to sin. Jesus is in effect saying, you guys are all gathered here to celebrate that God set you free from slavery in Egypt, but there's a bigger slave master. There's one who's way more of a harsh taskmaster than the Pharaoh of Egypt. It's sin. And you're a slave to sin and you can't stop sinning and and you need to be set free. Verse 35, the, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. I know that you're Jewish descendants. I get it. But, but you're trying to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. And I'll just, I'm not going to address the, my father, your father thing. Just believe me when I say that the passage we're looking at next week, it just, the, the, the train goes completely off the tracks and it almost turns into like an episode of the Jerry Springer show. Like, let's find out who the real father is and you're born of immorality. And it's, it's ugly. Okay. Come back next week. We're going to dive into that. I want to focus on this metaphor of freedom from slavery. And one of the challenges as a preacher, and one of the challenges for us as Americans living in the 21st century is we have, to, we have to address the reality that when the Bible speaks about slavery, it can conjure up all sorts of feelings and emotions and experiences that we have had in the United States of America, the, 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 the slavery, the horror of slavery in the United States of America is a particularly egregious race-based chattel slavery that is particularly heinous and is a particular stench in the nostrils of God. And we're still dealing with the effects of it even hundreds of years after slavery was made illegal. And as horrific as that is, and and even the Bible itself very clearly condemns kidnapping. uh, In in older translations, it talks about man-stealing or the theft of another human being. That is clearly condemned by the word of God. But there are times when the Bible speaks about slavery, and this is kind of one of those places where the word slavery is used almost more in like a pragmatic sort of a sense. And it can be hard for us as Americans because of our past and because of our history to hear what God is trying to say to us in his word. Here, here's the reality about slavery, particularly in this part of the world, in the Greco-Roman world. Slavery was almost primarily economics-based and not race-based the way that it was in the United States of America. 
the picture, and I, I, I did some pretty deep reading this week on this, and, and I'll just summarize a lot of rather boring material, but the idea behind it being that you worked yourself into a debt, you can't get out of it, you're economically ruined, you're hopeless, and the only hope that you have is to sign yourself up with a wealthy benefactor, and if you work hard enough, you can earn your financial freedom. In fact, in, in many parts of the Roman Empire, slavery, uh, sometimes you see it translated as a bond servant. That's an old-fashioned word. We don't really use it much in our culture today. But the idea is you could kind of work yourself out. If you just signed up with somebody who was rich enough, you could work hard enough and get yourself free from slavery. Does that sound like anything we sometimes talk about here at church? Does it sound like the moral impulse of some of us to say, God... I get what you're saying. I've done some wrong things. How about I just work really hard and do enough good deeds to earn your love and to earn my spiritual freedom? What do we say to that, friends? Not by works. Yeah. Jesus paid it all. The truth of the gospel is that Jesus says, if the Son sets you free you will be free indeed. See, friends, you might be able to sign yourself up for a credit card repayment plan and, and praise God for Dave Ramsey and other people who will yell at you for spending money you don't have and all that's fine and good. But the reality spiritually before God is we have accrued a spiritual debt that we are incapable of paying. And it is only through the perfect life of Jesus, his death on the cross and his resurrection that we receive our freedom. Amen. And this is incredibly good news for us because it doesn't just stop with your debt is paid. What does he say? He says, the slave does not remain in the house forever. It's a temporary arrangement. The son remains forever. There are times in the Bible where the word son is used gender inclusive, sons and daughters. Sometimes, however, the word is used gender specifically for males. And this is one of those times. And ladies, hear me on this. This is incredibly good news that you would be called a son because in this cultural context, only the males received the inheritance and the property rights of the fathers when they passed away. And the apostle Paul comes along later and says, listen, guys, there's no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. All are one in Christ Jesus. You all get these benefits. Amen. But here the point is, not only do you get your debt forgiven, not only do you have your debt paid, the debt that you could not pay, but you get a share of the inheritance that the son of God, Jesus Christ himself earned by his perfect life, his death and his resurrection. What did Jesus earn by doing that? Oh, just the whole universe. The Bible tells us that he's all things belong to him. He's uniting all things to himself. And so if you're united with Christ, you get not only debt forgiveness, you get an inheritance. You get eternal life. You get to rule and reign with him for all of eternity over a renewed new creation. That sounds pretty good. Amen. I mean, you can kind of maybe imagine a credit card company saying, listen, we're going to forgive your debt. You can kind of imagine that, right? But can you imagine said credit card company saying, and also we'd like to give you $3.2 million. We just want you to be covered. We just want you to be taken care of for the rest of your life. If you get that offer in the mail, like 
let me, text me right away. I will read the fine print, but like, let's do that, right? <laughs> let's, let's get in on that. What Christ is offering to us is infinitely better than that. Our, our unpayable spiritual debt is covered by the perfect work of Jesus. And we're given all of the riches of heaven, all of the rewards that he earned through his, by the way, I've said this, his perfect life a few times. Do you guys realize that Jesus, as the truth, never lied, never bent the truth, never PR'd things to make himself look good. Jesus just spoke the truth. Raise your hand here today if you've ever lied. And those of you who didn't raise your hand, You just did. You just lied. Like right now. There's not a perfect person in here. There's not a single one of us that says, yes, I and the truth have a perfect relationship. But Jesus did. And when God looks at us because of the work of Jesus, that's what he sees. So let me close with three encouragements for you. Three points of application. First of all, let's keep Jesus first. As you go from here, your phone's going to ding when you get service again outside of Linwood High and you're going to be like, oh, this, this thing I follow or Twitter or whatever and all this secret knowledge is going to start to be offered to you again or all of the things, your hobbies, your, your politics, your, your whatever it is that you're into, whatever it is. Again, I'm not saying don't look into those things, but let's keep Jesus first. Let's remember that he is the truth. And every time your heart has that desire to find truth or every time your heart is satisfied by some truth that you've, you've heard or received, let's test it by the truth that is Jesus. And let's let it drive us to him. Second, live free. Jesus says, if the son has set you free, you are free indeed. So friends, if you're In Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. That means two things. It means that you are free to not sin this week. And every time that you do and you you fall back into slavery, you fall back into your old ways, you're not thinking with the mentality of a son. You're thinking with the mentality of a slave. Let's remember who we are in Jesus. We're loved. We're co-heirs with Christ for crying out loud. That's amazing. Not on my own doing, but by his doing. Let's live free. It also means that you don't need to go through life with that mentality of, I got to pay God back. Oh, I got to pay off my debt. No, Jesus took care of the debt. Live free. And lastly, number three, would you share this truth with someone? One of the things about that impulse to find truth is also tied to the impulse to share truth. Oh my gosh, I found the best restaurant. You're going to love it. You just have to share. Oh my goodness, this band put out a a record. I absolutely love it. You got to hear it. It's amazing. Oh my gosh, I tried this new essential oil and it cleared up my acne and my bank account went into the black. It's amazing, right? Like whatever it is. I'm sorry. If you're an essential oilsist, I shouldn't pick on you. I love you. You and and your snake oil. It's fine. I love you. Um, Whatever it is, there's this impulse to share truth. Agreed? Why are we afraid to share Jesus sometimes? Because we've got the truth. We, we've known the truth. No, don't wield it like a club. Wield it with grace and with mercy and with compassion. But let's, let's share the truth this week as we go. God, I ask that you would search our hearts right now. Would you help us to know where there's been 
places where we've bought into lies or where we've taken other sources of truth and and put them in that place of ultimacy. Jesus, you are the truth. We confess that you are the truth and in you, there's true freedom from 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 the worst slave master imaginable, from sin and from death itself, you offer us true freedom. Jesus, would you help us not only to believe that truth, but would you help us to live that truth and to embody that truth and to share that truth with others as you give us opportunity. We pray as we enter into this time of response now in worship, I ask that you would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Friends, I'm going to invite you to respond in a few ways. We're going to respond through first the giving of our tithes and our offerings. If you're a guest or a visitor, please know there's no obligation to give, but we do this as a way of uh, just honoring God with what he's given to us. We're going to welcome our younger students class in to join us for this time of worship and response. I'll invite the musicians to come too as we prepare to sing. While they're collecting the offering, I just encourage you to give generously and freely as God would lead you. While they're collecting the offering, though, I want to I prepare us for a celebration of the Lord's table. If you have the elements that you received as you came through the doorway, we practice an open table. If you are a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus, you're welcome to celebrate with us. If, if you're not, the invitation is give your life to Jesus. Receive this freedom and join us at the table for the first time. We're going to celebrate this all together here in a moment. I'm going to begin by reading from 1 Corinthians 11. The Apostle Paul says that, that he received this from the Lord and he's delivering it to us. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, is this warning or this invitation to reflect, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Friends, today, I want to invite you to examine your heart. I'm going to invite you if you have the elements. We're going to do this together. We're going to, we're going to celebrate this as, as a church family. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite Jesus to search our hearts right now before we eat of the bread and before we drink of the cup. I invite you just to close your eyes with me if you want and and let's, let's focus our attention on him. God, we know that on our own, apart from you and your grace, we're slaves to sin. And God, even that truth sometimes is hard for us to receive. And so I pray that you'd help us to examine ourselves. You, Holy Spirit, you would search us And Jesus, we thank you for the freedom that you purchased with your broken body and your shed blood. Jesus, thank you that you are only continually nothing but truth to us and for us and in us. And today, Lord Jesus, as we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, may we be filled with your truth and may we embody your truth. Friends, we take the bread. This is the body of Jesus that was broken for us, that we might have freedom. Take and eat.
Friends, we take this cup. This is the blood of Jesus that was poured out for our cleansing to wash us clean of all of our lies, all of our deceptions, all of our posturing and our half-truths. This is the blood of Jesus poured out for the forgiveness of many. Friends, let's take and drink together of Jesus' blood. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice for us. And I pray now as we sing and celebrate that we'd be filled with your spirit and we'd be filled with your truth and we would worship you in spirit and truth. Pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.